Welcome to Purpose to Performance. I'm really looking forward to the show today with my special guest. She's a very inspiring, but also a very busy lady. Um, We met on a charity cycling ride in New York about three years ago, and I've been trying to get her on the pod ever since. She's a transformational coach, celebrated author, inspirational speaker, gold medal winning Paralympian athlete, and a global explorer. She's been on some of the craziest adventures all over the world. And here she is today to speak with us. Welcome, Karen Dark, MBE. Hi, Andrew. Good to be here. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I've given you my, my version of, a, of an introduction. How would you describe yourself and what, what you <laughs> do? Well, I don't know. We can adopt all these labels, can't we? I'm just, I'm just me, <laughs> a being getting along with trying to do things, yeah, try to do things that hopefully make a positive difference to people and things that I get excited about. Um, I always kind of balk at the comment, the very busy lady. I don't know what busy is, to be honest. I, I, I suppose it's interesting when I realise, uh, when I look at my life, because I, I like to fill it. So give me as much empty space as you like, and there'll always be, yeah, I'll always uh, make the best use of my time. But also that includes protecting time to do things that feel important, be that spending time in nature, having some space to share with friends or meditate. So when you say I'm a very busy lady, it doesn't mean I'm just there. Yeah, it's, I kind of reflect on that and think, actually, sometimes it's also about protecting the the spacious, precious time, isn't it? Because that's for me, that's crucial to stay connected to my best self and being w- working with passion and purpose on the things that I'm excited about. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I use it in the context of, I just find it inspiring that you managed to pack so much in rather than <laughs> one of those people that we all know, you know, and I was probably one of them as a corporate executive where, you know, you tell yourself you're busy and you pack your calendar full of meetings and emails and everything else. But as you say, in terms of the richness of life and investing the time wisely in a way that's going to fulfill you and and have purpose in, in life and in the world, then yeah, th- those people might describe themselves as busy, but yeah, it's it's a different context. But no, I, I'm just every time we meet and, and talk, and you know, you're either just coming off the back of one adventure, or you you <laughs> traveling somewhere else. It's just an action-packed life, which um, I always go away and reflect and think, God, I'm just yeah. There's so much more I could could be doing if I got off my backside and. Um, well, I think I, we all, I think we always we all suffer from comparisonitis, you know, where we're always comparing ourselves to others and thinking that other people have got it more sorted than us, or that they do more than us. Or, but uh, you know, I think there's a reality check in there as well. And I'm not sure if I do really. It might it might just seem that way. <laughs> I have lots of pretty pictures because I do like to travel and uh, have adventures, so they do tend to feature, which probably makes it seem like I'm doing more somehow. But yeah, yeah. But you do fit in some some uh, some work between adventures not that adventuring isn't isn't wholly connected to your work and what you do but you know you operate as a coach just very briefly and what sort of people do you do you coach and and to what aim or purpose it moves and varies quite a lot actually um ultimately I like coaching anyone who wants to create to transform to perform to shift their life in a new direction I suppose I call myself a kind of transformational coach I like to think about the alchemy of life and how nothing stays the same forever so 
most of us are in transformation all of the time. I don't think it's just something that's unique to certain phases of life. Um, many the people I like to coach are are all, you know they're looking forward to how to be more inspired or happier versions of themselves or how to contribute more to the world in some way. So, um, so yeah, that's the kind of people I work with. And the sectors that I work in really vary. In the past, it's been in the sort of social enterprise sector quite a bit. People with incredible visions for the world doing really great stuff. And um, more recently, in the last few years, I've been doing a lot of performance coaching. The Flow Research Collective, you may have come across, um, Stephen Kotler's work. So I, I was working as a coach, a flow coach for them. And uh, yeah, more recently, just sort of some of my own work. And some of the things I'm passionate about are, yeah, that I'm, I'm kind of developing an idea called the possibility process and this concept of inner gold life. So how do we create more peace inside of ourselves and more space so that we can bring our best selves forward rather than kind of have too much stress or pressure going on? Because most of that stress and pressure is actually internal and within us. And it's really helpful to find some tools that can help us all transcend that sense of stress and pressure and busyness to be able to actually find our best souls that we can bring to the world. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I know, I know you're uniquely connected to gold. And you, you mentioned that, finding that inner gold and everything. Um, and, and I know, yeah, you've got a fascinating backstory and and uh an experience which i'd love to get into in more detail about coaching and everything else but i am conscious that you're squeezing this in between two uh two adventures um which which i really want to get into today so so maybe another time we'll get more into the the, the coaching background and and your story and gold medals and and everything else in your life but um yeah you've come off the back of a trip to bhutan in Mm -hmm. october late september october yeah. And you're planning now for an expedition to the South Pole in December. Yeah, not the South Pole, actually. The Pole of Possibility, which um, won't be at the South Pole, I don't think. We were, it's been intriguing to see where it'll be, but actually, it's, uh, we can come on to that story, but definitely to Antarctica. Yeah. It's, so it's a big year for me. That's not a typical year, um, especially in recent years with COVID. But Bhutan has been a place that I've really been fascinated by for many decades it uh, is a country which well it's the only carbon negative country in the world and they measure progress and take development decisions based on the concept of gross national happiness rather than gross national products so they really they have a survey that they do with the population or a percentage of the population and really look at um, basically the happiness of people and what impacts that and so it's a prime focus of the government uh, that, that one of their basic reasons for existence is to enhance people's happiness and to help support that rather than to just uh, focus on economic development. So it's a really fascinating place. Clearly, it's a, it's a Buddhist country and it's full of monasteries and um, nunneries or convents. I'm not sure what, what they're called, but um, we spent a lot of time in that sort of spiritual domain whilst visiting the country, along with learning more about, about the concept of gross national happiness and how that works. So, yeah, it was a very special journey through Bhutan to, uh, to explore that with a, a, a very wonderful group of people who came together. Um, I didn't know where these people would come from or who they would be, but there ended up being 10 of us who took this journey to find inner gold through Bhutan and just learning from this wonderful culture and the Buddhist fabric of the country. 
Mm. Yeah, it was. I mean, the one thing I I knew about Patan was this this uh, concept of measuring gross domestic happiness rather than gross domestic product, which yeah sounds fantastic, but it, it leaves me thinking. Well, how do you do that? You know, on a on a practical everyday level. Mm-hmm. So, did, did you get some insight as to what what those measures were and and how it manifests itself into day-to-day life there. Yeah, so we visited the Gross National Happiness Centre, who were basically responsible alongside working with the government and doing the national surveys. So they, every four years, I I think it's every four years, don't quote me on that, but there is a, they they do this national survey. It's only with a small percentage of the population. I think it's actually about 2%, but the, the interviews take up to three hours with each, with each person and it's quite a, new, a very in-depth survey looking at, I think there's nine, there are nine pillars. There are four domains and nine pillars that they've defined as, um, as, as, as making up these, these, these core elements of, of happiness. So they, I can't list them off the top of my head, but they're essentially around sense of community, a sense of purpose, um, standard of living, health access to sort of their, their level of well-being and and health, um, mental well-being, um, spiritual sense of you know some kind of spiritual connection. That they're they're all of the things which all of the Western world studies on happiness kind of purport to be important. Um, yeah, those those key elements around meaning, relationships, purpose, um, basic levels of access to things that make life more comfortable or uh, health more possible. So they, they measure those. And then if there's a decision to be taken, they, they have a, they, they're a little bit tuned into which regions of the country might be happier than others. There are like lead regions. And I believe the BBC were in touch with them because there was one person in one region of Bhutan who came out as the happiest person in Bhutan. So apparently the BBC latched onto this and wanted to go and interview this particular person. Um, so I, I mean, I guess it just gives that holistic view. And when the when a government is focused on happiness being important, I suppose if I just think by the simple placebo effect, where where our focus goes, we might say our energy flows. But if if, if a country is focused on making its people happier, then I'm fairly sure that has a positive impact on people's mindsets and if people know that their country is perhaps famous for gross national happiness and again that's going to have some kind of impact so I think it's not that the people it's not that the country's without problems clearly it's full of um, many problems that many societies have there is we know we heard stories of, of people with mental health problems and depression and alcoholism and just the same kinds of challenges that we might expect to to occur anywhere but I think the, what, what's different is that the, the government and society seems very, very values-based. So it's very focused on um, some of the Buddhist values of compassion and kindness. And there's a lot of research into happiness, which shows that when we do something nice for another person, that actually is even more beneficial for our own happiness than it is for the, the other person, potentially. So you know, kindness and human connection and these topics like, like compassion we know have a really positive effect on our neurochemistry on our own levels of of happiness so the, these are values that are so imbued into the country 
and into the fabric of society that I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure that has a very great impact on, on people's levels of happiness or, or even their perceptions, you know, really happiness is, you know, there's research being done into happiness around somebody wins a lottery, someone else is paralyzed. And one year later, their base level of happiness has not changed. The person who's won the lottery for a while, their happiness goes up. And the person who's been paralyzed for a while, their happiness goes down. But um, over a longer time period, those people go back to their previous sort of base level. Um, so if the base level is then, I, don't, I can't remember where I was going with this thread, but certainly in, in Bhutan, it feels like that base level is higher than anywhere else I've been. It feels like people live with these values of compassion and kindness and care for each other. It's a relatively small country. It's a relatively small population. So there is this sense of connected communities um, and people really looking out for each other. Apparently, the, the king of Bhutan has moved into quite a, a modest, regular sort of house that, that other people would live in rather than the palace and quite a benevolent king. So people have a very, you know, have a, a very positive view of him and of that kind of equality in society. So I think that there's a lot to learn from, from the country. And uh, obviously, they've been isolated from the rest of the world for most of their existence. It was only actually around the year 2000 that television was introduced in Bhutan and, and radio and that those connections with the wider world started to be developed. So they've managed to maintain this quite unique um, identity. <laughs> yeah, and because that was one thing that occurred to me. I knew they kind of resisted all this and it was quite quite closed in that sense. You know, so do you think it, it's sustainable? Is it changing? Will they man manage to, to hold on to this? Or do you think the further sort of creeping globalisation, global tourism... Mm -hmm. TV and everything else is going to start chipping away and it'll it'll become more westernized with all the challenges that western civilizations bring in terms of physical mental health. Yeah, I mean we did ask that very question and I guess I guess no one knows the answer but I suppose they are 20 plus years into that process and development is clearly something which they look at very closely. There there aren't really many multinational country uh, companies in there we didn't see any McDonald's or any Starbucks. So there is this real sense of, you know, local and the, that ma maintaining culture is an important part of their values and is also part of the, the government focus, as is sustainable tourism. So I'm very fortunate to have gone to Bhutan. It's not a cheap or easy place to, to visit. You pay a very high tourism tax. It's not that kind of, you know, one or two euros that might exist in, in a European country per day. It's actually $400 a day in um, sustainable tourism tax. Actually, it's $200 a day for the government, and but you pay $400 a day to be in the country, and that includes your hotel and a tour guide. So they're really protecting... Part, part of the money you pay daily to be there goes to the government sustainable tourism um, process, and the other part of the money goes to supporting the, the people and the guides and the, the companies that operate tourism within Bhutan. So everything about it is is a little bit exclusive. Obviously not everybody can go or you've got to really want to go and make some real focused intention to raise the, the money required to spend time there. And I guess in, in itself, that's an interesting model that perhaps other countries will follow just as um, over tourism and, and the pressure on resources and just becomes greater and greater and 
reaches a point where it's you know absolutely unsustainable. So I'm not sure if other countries will take it to that level, but I think they've really thought about all of these elements and their aim is not for mass tourism, but for very, very high quality um, tourism where you get a really deep, in-depth deeply cultural experience of, the, of this of this quite unique country. So it seems like they think about sustainability across the board through all of the areas, including the protection of nature. For example, by, I think it, by government constitution, I think 66% of the country has to be covered in forest to remain carbon negative. And actually the actual figure is something like 72%. So they've seemed to have like, embodied these sustainable principles across the board from from the protection of nature through to the protection against tourism uh, right through to other development areas so maybe mm. they future maybe they future proof themselves <laughs> yeah you'd like to think so because you know having having a background in the tourism industry you know i've seen so many countries destinations around the world that have just been ruined you know by mass tourism Mm-hmm. And, and that, you know the endemic culture or or geography or ecosystem or whatever that that attracted the tourism in the first place has just been eroded and eroded and lost through the the globalization of of, of tourism mass tourism and everything else which is kind of tragic um so yeah my my whole heart is hoping that uh, even if I never get to go and visit that they they're successful in their mission in that respect one other question just occurred before we move on. So, do, do the people, the, the government, the people guiding the the king, the people guiding the country, have they kind of looked out? Have they been out and studied in a, in, in other countries and and learned these lessons, or are these just lessons that they've uh, and strategies that they've handed down and and evolved and, and, and developed with an internal focus? Because it seems prescient in, in, in terms of its simplicity, but also its importance and effectiveness. Mm-hmm. And you kind of wonder, yeah, where it came from. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm not sure if I can, if I'm fully qualified to answer that question, but certainly, for example, we, we traveled in Bhutan with a company called My Bhutan, who are actually a sort of social enterprise tourism company connected to the Royal family. And, um, that all of the staff that we met that worked there are certainly not so much the actual guides that were with us, but all of those that are working for the organization in a sort of organizational capacity have all studied or traveled abroad. So, um, and they're really well educated. They've got a real sort of awareness of, of, of big issues. So the conversations that we had with them were, were really fantastic. You know, they really, a lot of them had studied in other countries from America to Britain to Canada, all, all over the world, um, India. Um, so I, f- I had this sense that there was an understanding and a, and, a, and a relatability, not just this kind of closed kingdom that have no idea what's going on elsewhere in the world. Um, obviously, we only got a, a, a sort of certain cross-section of the population and there are areas of Bhutan that are very, very remote, um, high in the Himalayas, very distant parts of the country, which are not really easily connected to by road or, or other means. So I'm sure there are different profiles as there are in any country of, of different sections of the, of the population that would maybe not have that perspective. And certainly when we visited the Gross National Happiness Centre, 
we were, you know, we were reminded that a lot of people in Bhutan won't even know that that's such a big thing for Bhutan. They wouldn't necessarily know that that's um, an important measure for the government. So I think like anywhere, there's a big wide educational cross-section and, and those who are more um, able and perhaps been more privileged to have been able to study in other countries. Mm. So what would you take from your experience in the Bhutan? <laughs> well, there's a couple of things that I've definitely brought home that I've really noticed. So one of them was just this experience of living in a country. And interestingly, the group that our particular group, the, the group of 10 that we had, it really gave me hope that there is a way that human beings can really operate together with kindness and compassion and ability to for conflict not to get in the way it doesn't feel like like even within our small group if ever somebody's personality perhaps had an edge to it it might start to, to start to rise but then there was a level of somehow awareness and and love and compassion between people even though we'd never all met each other before we got there which meant that anything that could have potentially become tension just dissipated um, or we were able to talk about it so I guess it gave me this realization that the, it really is possible to have groups of people and potentially countries of people where there's a lot more harmony than we typically see in the world. And the other thing I think that it taught me personally or somehow imbued in me is just a more, a more compassion for everybody I meet. So it's really, I, I don't think I was like a person who was particularly harsh or judgmental of people but sometimes you know we can be irritated a bit at a bit by somebody or we might not give them as much compassion as we could do but if we if we think that everyone really is doing the best that they can in the circumstances they've got and nobody really means to hurt anybody um somehow it just feels like it's imbued more of that quality in me and it feels that I've been noticing that more since I, since I got back Mm, that's great. Before we move on to talk about your next adventure, let me just take a couple of minutes to talk about the show's sponsor, Magic Mind. For those regular listeners, you know that uh, I've been drinking Magic Mind, this new productivity drink, for, yeah, must be at least 12 weeks now. Uh, and I take it as a daily shot, and uh, it really works for me. I use it not as a caffeine replacement because, you know, I live in Spain. I love my coffee. Um, so I still have my early morning espresso. But what I don't now do is go and have that second or third espresso in the morning, which helped with energy, but it was just played havoc with my focus. I got very fidgety, very, very jittery. Now I, uh, I take a magic mind shot and that gives me the same level of energy but with much greater ability to focus, um, helps me, you know, get rid of that early morning brain fog. But then, you know, it's it's a mellow state that I get into when I'm I'm productive, I'm focused, I don't fidget. So it really works for me. And you know, what, what's important to me is, as many of you know, I follow a plant based diet. I'm a bit of a health freak, so I'm very careful about what I put in my body and and. Uh, and I noticed the impact that, that new foods, new diets have on me. So yeah, it definitely works for me. I'm seeing the benefits during the day. It's all natural ingredients. It, you know, it doesn't mess with my metabolism and it doesn't disrupt my sleep patterns. So, you know, for me, it's, it's an all round winner. But uh, you know, I'd recommend to everybody out there, 
If you're looking for something that, uh, you know, either you want to reduce your caffeine dependency or you struggle with with attention and and, uh, and energy and focus in the mornings, I, I would really suggest try it out. Let me know what you think. Um, so if you do want to try it out, you can go to magicmind.co. That's .co, not .com. And if you then go forward slash PTP, then you can benefit from uh, a discount on your orders. Or even better, if you use the uh, fulfillment code PTP20 on a subscription order, then you'll get up to 40% off. So uh, it makes it really affordable. They ship everywhere in the world. And uh, as I say, yeah, works for me. Try it out. Let me know what you think. So... That was that was October. Now we're looking forward to December and the whole of possibility. So tell us just a little bit about what the intent is. I, I read, you know, the objective is to create more ice in a gold connection and enabling environments. But explain mm-hmm. what, what, what that means and what sits behind it. Yeah, well, it's a work in progress. And it's, it's definitely, for me, it feels like a, a really big project. I think to be able to go to Antarctica is an, is a huge privilege and it's a it's a fragile continent it's a precious place and it's far far away and very expensive to get to so we're really privileged our small team of 3 there's myself um a professor who's a an environmental geographer so his specialist subject is the value of nature and a filmmaker so we we are taking a journey in, in Antarctica it, we're going to a place that nobody's ever been and probably will ever want to go <laughs> in the middle of nowhere, um, which we're calling the pole of possibility. So this point is the intersection of la- the 79 degrees latitude and longitude. Now, why here? Um, there's a backstory to this, which is quite long, but I'll try and keep it really short. So I have this thread in life with gold. I used to be a geologist studying gold and the gold was invisible. It was locked in in the lattice of minerals in the, in the Bolivian Andes. Um, and later on, I became a Paralympic athlete and was sort of working out how to win gold medals. And now I guess I've moved on to realising that the real gold is what we've got inside of us. It's that potential that we all have to find more joy and more peace within us and between us and so I call that inner gold and when I realized that the 79th latitude and longitude 79 is the atomic number of gold and when I realized that these two lines intersected in the middle of Antarctica I just felt compelled to go there and create this place called the pole of possibility so it's all a bit random although I have since discovered that all of the major I think the major temples in India all the major Hindu temples are built on the 79th meridian east but I can't find any explanation as to why. But clearly there's something kind of special about this number or some kind of spiritual connection with it. I'm not sure why, but it's uh, it's an intriguing journey to myself. But this is where we're going. And in the process of traveling there, um, we want to well, we will we will be making a film, really exploring this concept of inner gold. So that will come down to a little bit of just discussing it and me sharing tools that I've learned along the way about how to find more of that. I think Antarctica represents that. It's just this pristine, spacious, peaceful place. The Antarctic Treaty actually makes it a peaceful continent because for the next, um, at least until 2041, when it expires, 
Nobody's allowed to claim territory in Antarctica. It's protected against exploitation for minerals or oil or anything else. So it does kind of represent this potential in all of us for more peace and sort of a more pristine environment. But then there are other elements to the to the journey and the expedition, which are perhaps uh, quite interesting around technology and bringing together of of different sort of schools of thought from from psychology to geography to environmental science, right through to actual mechanical engineering and medical engineering and all these kind of areas. So we're connecting lots of different sort of subject areas to make this possible because it's quite challenging for someone in my position being paralyzed um, from the chest down to go into this kind of environment. And it does, it's only enabled, it's only made possible by this bringing together of many different areas, these connections, and also to, you know, the, the enabling technology that's being created. So we're really sort of looking at how the collection of the inner spaces within us and the connections between different sort of topics and then these abilities to create real surprising possibilities when when we have the tools and the technology to do that um, amazing things become possible so we really just want to inspire more possibility thinking in people um, and obviously Antarctica also represents everything bad about what humanity have done to the, are doing to the planet and you know it the science that gets carried out there really highlights all of the damage to the environment so Whilst we're not doing this as a climate change project or anything, and we are offsetting everything that we do to travel there will be carbon negative. And it's really just a reminder that rather than, rather than looking at the doom and gloom of our future, which we're kind of led to by the stories in the press and, and the changes that we're all seeing, maybe we can find solutions to these big global problems. Maybe we can with the technology and the connections and the uh, and the you know a different inner approach. So, so I'm guessing the the objective, the, the sort of out, the, the outcome is is raising awareness of possibilities, and that hence the the pole of possibility, the possibility of what we can can achieve when we make these connections and combine the environment, people, technology, and everything else. And mindset, of, yeah. yeah, both in our personal lives because all of us face difficult circumstances and I guess in, and then in the bigger picture of the some of the more you know social and global problems that we that we face mm. so yeah just this when I was you know prepping for the for the part I was, I was just trying to get my head around that challenge you know that physical challenge of where you're going how you how far you're going the environment how you you'll travel in that environment and yeah what what it takes for you and your mindset to, to set off on an adventure like that? <laughs> yeah, it's a very good question. And I have noticed myself being in a, in a, in a more a heightened state of uh, anxiety from where I would normally, from my, you know, normally I don't experience much anxiety, but I've had more of it lately just in the build up to this. So I've really had to work hard or I'm working hard still on managing that. And it's, so I'm kind of working at two ends of the spectrum. One of them is on kind of from the inside out, if you like. So I've been doing more meditation than I've been doing. I've been just connecting with how I want to feel on the ice, that sense of kind of peace and space and fun and enjoyment. Um, 
because it is going to be, you know, it's got the potential to be hell or it's got the potential to be the most incredible heavenly experience I might have in my life. So I'm quite aware that it, I could create that either way. So I'm, I'm trying to bring my mind into, um, into the, the best version of it. And then there's the more practical side. And, you know, I think about my Olympic journey with that. I, you don't win a gold medal by just thinking about it or imagining it. You have to do the work and, that requires constant daily commitment. So I've um, I've been putting in a good few hours of work every day into the project and and what it's about and thinking about the film and fundraising and all the different aspects that are involved. And now as we get closer, it's kind of getting into real spreadsheet mode of looking at the detail and the packing lists. And I mean, you wouldn't believe, I'm sure you would believe, but the, the level of detail I'm having to go into specifically around my disability is quite in, quite big around tiny, tiny details to do with managing catheters and um, my intestines and my potential for cold injuries because you can't regulate your body temperature when you're paralyzed and um, pressure sores, I can't feel my skin or anything. So there are lots of extra layers of potential complication which I really need to pay attention to and so yeah there's a, a big level of detail in there and detail's not my strong point so I'm having to work on stuff that's not typically my strength which makes it slightly more challenging as well. Amazing yeah and again I was re reading the research that you've one, one of the partners has developed this new territory this new ice trike mm -hmm. so uh, yeah, it, I mean, it looks amazing. I, I saw a video of you. I think it looked like you were going up and down Payenta Beach or somewhere like that. So, you know, how much time have you had? One in developing that, and two in practicing in in its use. Yeah. So actually, while so this bike is quite incredible, it has changed my life. So it's um, a tricycle made by a company called Inspired Cycle Engineering. They made one which was ridden. It's the only successful cycle journey in Antarctica. It's the only person who's actually managed to cycle the full distance from the, the coast to the pole, did it on, a, on an ice tricycle. Following, she was following an ice road that was created between the American science base and the South Pole. So actually she had like this very compressed surface to follow. Um, nobody has ever successfully that we know of, and I've done a lot of research and spoken to a lot of people. There are lots of, when you Google fat biking Antarctica, there's all these people that are apparently setting off to do it, but you never find the follower particles about anyone that's like, yay, we did it. So apparently no one's actually successfully fat biked to the pole or across Antarctica on virgin, you know, virgin snow. Basically, they have to push it most of the way or carry it because the, the snow and the sastrugi, that's like the waves you get in the ice are too big. So um, originally I was planning to sit ski this, but I have cycled on kind of basically following rivers and oceans on seven continents or six continents. And this is the last one. So I really aspire to hand biking there. But um, the bike arrived quite late, late in the day because of COVID. So I only got it this summer. So it's been ridden on Israeli beaches with the hand cycle attachments has been made by some Israeli engineers and it's been ridden on Scottish beaches and uh, forests, but it's never been ridden on ice and snow yet. 
Um, apart from, I know that the, the ice trike, which is the base frame, has been used in Antarctica. So it's all a big experiment, and getting it there is going to be quite an immense part of the logistics because it's quite a large machine, and there's lots to think about in terms of studded ice tires and lubricants that will work in the cold and um, puncture resistance um, lubricants, not lubricants, but to li liquids to go in the wheels that will work at uh, sub-zero temperatures. So it's introduced a whole new level of technology and stress for me because I'm not really an engineer or a, uh, even a good bike mechanic. <laughs> so we'll see. Uh, so we're going to try it out and hopefully it will be usable at least for some, if not all of the journey, but I'm going with the, both the bike and the sit ski. And it's going to be a case of uh, just seeing what works best in the conditions when we get there. And of course, on an ice, in an environment like Antarctica, the conditions vary all the time. You can't really tell what the snow or ice will be like, how soft or hard it will be. And it might well be unlikely, given no one successfully used a fat bike to cross virgin ice and snow for very far. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it all goes. So that's part of the experiment. Yeah, yeah. But I think, it'll, I think it'll be the first time a handbike has ever been in Antarctica, so that's, that'll be quite cool in itself. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like there's going to be a number of firsts. And you know, from what I've seen, it, look, it looked like the... Oh, well, I guess you know, one of the, the spin-offs of this cutting-edge technology is that it leads into advances in, in uh, you know, things like this, that which will enable other you know, people that are currently wheelchair-bound to to get further into the country, not necessarily into Antarctica, but, you know, if yeah. these, these types of uh, prototypes get, get developed in advance. So, yeah, uh, I mean, that was, that was one of the original motivators for the engineers that created this handbike. And honestly, it really has. I cried, uh, shed tears on Scottish beaches and in forests this summer because I've not been able to go into the, these environments, these beautiful natural environments for 30 years since I've been paralysed. So it's it's already had a massive impact on my happiness level, if you like, and my uh, ability to enter these these beautiful places. So um, hopefully it will do that for other people too. Yeah, fantastic. So you've, you've, I know, just sort of wrapping up, but I know you, you said you've got you know, the detailed planning, you've got lots of sponsors and, and a lot of partners involved. Is there, is there anything anything missing uh, that you're still out there looking for? Or Well, so uh, always, I think um, we're missing $20,000. <laughs> um, so that's what a, a final sort of challenge I'm currently working on. So if there is anyone listening who might be able to help with that, amazing. Um, and yeah, we're, we're missing some funding to produce the film. Our filmmaker is so passionate that he's going to do it anyway, but we, we do have um, an orchestra who've, sorry, a choir and a composer who are working with us to create film and music. So music for the film, but yeah, eventually we'll need to find some film budget to, to tell the story. And we're not really looking to tell the story of us in Antarctica. It's more these kind of, well, obviously that's the backdrop to, to some other things that we'll be exploring that we hope will have a lot more relevance to people watching it and find really interesting. So, yeah. Yeah, and I guess in terms of the aim, raising awareness, the, you know, that, that development and, and the distribution of the film is key to, to the outcome. Yeah. So, yeah. And the other, the other thing that um, I'm really, we're really keen to do, but so far there's not been many, there's nothing really forthcoming, but we've created a story competition 
it's not really a competition, but we just want people to contribute stories of when either technology or their mindset or some sort of connection with teams or other people has really enabled something surprising just to tell positive stories. Because when we're on the ice, we won't have the ability to send back much information or communication from the ice, but we'd love to be sharing some of these stories every day whilst we're there about possibilities. So if anyone's listening to this and can contribute a story that could be just a, a very short one to two minute video or a, a few paragraphs or even a few lines, then it would be wonderful if we could, um, if, they, if they could send them to me, um, if, they, if people can just send to me via my website, karendark.com, D-A-R-K-E for dark. And yeah, we'd, we'd, we'd love to share those to hopefully inspire people about really what is possible. Brilliant. Well, yeah, hopefully, you know, some listeners will pick up on that. And yeah, maybe somebody knows somebody who knows somebody and um, you, you never know where those connections go. And um, yeah. Help, yeah, help all, we, all we actually need is even one, you know, one school, one college, one university, one business to get, get this going, get some stories in. It'd be fantastic. Yeah. Brilliant. I'm, I'm so grateful for you taking time out of your super busy schedule to fit this conversation in. And oh, yeah, I've got an important date with my sofa tonight. It's very busy. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, all it's, part of it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's great to see you, uh, albeit briefly. I wish you every success and safe travels. And uh, yeah, when you get back to Mallorca and you've got time for a coffee and a chat and photos, I'm desperate to, uh, to hear another story and, uh, and then hear what ne- what's next. I look forward to it. We'll be out for a ride. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, thanks. Karen. Thanks. Um, thanks. Thanks very much to our listeners. Um, please share the episode because, you know, it's all about connections and, uh, you know, bringing people together, sharing stories and, and making things happen. So, yeah, please like, subscribe, share, and uh, I'll see you next time on Purpose to Performance. Thanks a lot. <laughs>